I'm Teresa Carey, and this is The Top Line from Fierce Biotech, Fierce MedTech, and Fierce Pharma. Today is Friday, March 31st, and my colleague across the pond, James Waldron, is here to give you all the biopharma and medtech industry news you need. The U.S. is entering a new era in the fight against opioids. As Fraser Kansteiner reports, the FDA gave an over-the-counter approval to Narcan nasal spray. Narcan is a popular brand-name version of the overdose reversal med naloxone. Up until now, all approved naloxone products were prescription ones. This 4mg spray comes from Emergent Biosolutions. By late summer, Emergent expects Narcan to hit shelves at places like drugstores, supermarkets and gas stations. It will also be sold online. Emergent hasn't named a price for the non-prescription product, though spokesperson Matt Hartwig confirmed via email that the list price will differ from the price most patients pay out of pocket. Drug overdoses are a major public health problem in the US. According to the FDA, there were nearly 102,000 fatal overdoses during the 12-month period that ended in October. Most of those deaths were caused by synthetic opioids like fentanyl. A new path may be opening up for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. But as Andrea Park reports, PTSD therapies typically rely on a combination of medications and in-person counselling. But last week, the FDA cleared one of the first self-neuromodulation systems. The clearance went to the Israeli startup Grey Matters Health. Patients wear an electrode-studded headset during 30-minute sessions. They are guided into focusing on a specific, pleasant memory or a calming emotion while viewing a monitor showing a noisy and chaotic scene. At the same time, the headset scans the brain's electrical activity and provides feedback. In about two months, the goal is for the wearer to learn how to better regulate their neural activity. PTSD may be just the start for Grey Matters. In its announcement of the FDA clearance, the company said it wants to take its approach to depression, anxiety and other disorders. Neuralink is preparing to begin implanting its brain-computer interface in humans. During a presentation last fall, CEO Elon Musk said the company was on track to begin a clinical trial of the implants by this spring. But as Andrea Park reports, since then, several current and former employees told Reuters that the FDA had rejected an application from Neuralink last year to start human trials. Several of those employees expressed doubt that the company would be able to fix all the issues cited by the FDA anytime soon. Neuralink still hasn't gotten the go-ahead to begin a trial, but several anonymous sources told Reuters this week that it's already looking for a partner for that eventual study. They said that progress has so far included discussions with the Barrow Neurological Institute in Phoenix, which is the largest neuroscience centre in the US. A director at the institute discussed with Reuters the potential benefits of teaming up with Neuralink on a trial, but stopped short of verifying the reports. Meanwhile, Fierce reached out to Neuralink for confirmation, but did not get a reply. Coming up next, we'll hear from Glenn Hunzinger about biotech's finances this year. And later, more news about J&J's RSV vaccine and the White House's manufacturing goals. But first, an announcement. March Madness. I'm sure you're dying to find out who the final winners are, and so am I. But we aren't there yet. 
We are down to the final four. Gear up for your next vote, which will choose who goes into the championship decider. Voting ends at 6 p.m. today. This year, you're helping us select the best pharma ads. So go to fiercepharma.com to find out who's made the cut so far and submit your final vote. 2022 was a tough year for biotechs in anyone's book. The number of large-scale acquisitions dwindled, while IPOs all but dried up. But the best indicator of how tough the market was for drug developers was the number of companies forced to lay off staff. At Fierce, we recorded 119 companies who resorted to reducing their headcounts. And judging by the Fierce Biotech layoff tracker, 2023 is looking like more of the same. So, should biotechs be braced for another year of falling share prices, limited M&A and wary investors? Or will we finally see an upturn in the market? Fierce Biotech's James Waldron sat down with Glenn Hunsinger to talk about the financial trends he expects biotechs to face in 2023. Hunsinger is the U.S. Pharma and Life Science Leader at Financial Advisors, PwC. Here they are. Thank you for joining me today, Glenn. I want to start with a million-dollar question for biotechs and pharma, which is, are we going to see this bear market continue through into 2023, or is there a chance of a potential recovery on the cards? James, thanks for having me. Uh, Good to be here. I think when we look at 2023, you know, I think everybody uh, believes or is at least hopeful that the back half of 23 is when we start to see kind of uh, signs of kind of resurgence of sort of lending into uh, early stage biotechs, kind of the, the, the VC money flowing in and start to have a little bit of bounce back into the IPO market. I think when we take a step back and look at the last couple of years, there was an, a, you know, a, a, a flurry of funding that went into the capital markets, both sort of the IPO, the SPACs, uh, and a lot of capital ran into, the, into sort of the equity markets there. Uh, and, and frankly, probably a result of that, a lot of companies got funded that probably shouldn't have gotten funded. So I think where we sit is we have a, we have a, uh, Plenty of biotech companies that got funded, uh, a lot of which uh, remain focused, remain sort of uh, focused on sort of their capital and their cash and, you know, focused on the key science, some of which went, went really sort of wide. And, you know, from what we see, about a third of these companies are going to run out of cash in the next sort of six to nine months. Uh, so we have uh, a little bit of filtering through sort of the biotech market as far as those that will continue on their journey and those that, you know, will need some funding uh, and that funding likely to come from uh, alternative sources or sort of corporate. Certainly one thing we've noticed at Fierce seems to be a trend for more biotechs facing the threat of being delisted from the NASDAQ as their share price starts to drop below $1. Uh, Some cases I've seen companies trying to use techniques like reverse stock splits or other strategies to stay on the stock market. Is that something that you picked up on? And if so, is that a bad sign for the sector? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think there's um, going to be a natural continuation of filtering of there's a lot of public companies, as I said you know, before, that, um, that got funded that um, you know, either maybe shouldn't have gotten funded or you know, weren't as prudent with their capital as they should have. So there's going to be you know, a bunch of companies that are going to start to run out of cash. And I think we're going to continue to see some of them get delisted 
I think there's a, while there's a lot of good science out there, there's a lot to sort of work through. So I think we're naturally going to see some companies uh, fold a bit. Uh, and we'll see some companies look to sort of license to try to uh, salvage uh, some of their core uh, assets they're trying to develop. In terms of the private markets and, uh, you know, investors, are they being a bit more picky now then? And if so, what, what are they looking for specifically? Is, is it a certain type of company? Is it a certain disease area? You know, what's their focus? Yeah, good question. I, you know, I, I think b- more broadly, there's just less capital that's being allocated to sort of the, the public markets and that sort of water falling down to sort of the biotech market here. Um, so that's kind of sort of a more macro theme. I think from sort of the ground up, I think a lot of the sort of venture capital right now is, you know, sitting and waiting. They deployed a lot. You know, I think they're looking for things that are maybe a little further along, you know, better sort of proof of, of uh, sort of a clear path. And, you know, there's no doubt uh, a lot of oncology got funded, a lot of which is uh, because there's a great analog. And certainly over the last five to 10 years, I've seen sort of that playbook and sort of the ability to really develop uh, oncology uh, and develop in a very sophisticated way. So I think, you know, some capital will continue to come into that because I think it's a little bit more proven, uh, particularly as you get to that sort of next level down uh, if they're heading into certain parts of the sort of the body or that. Uh, so we'll continue to see that. And I think, you know, if there's other areas that certainly have uh, great endpoints, uh, I think those are, you know, those are areas where people continue to be uh, opportunistic around investing. So you talk about some investors sitting and waiting. You know, is there a sense that maybe they're frustrated that they can't find enough good biotechs? I mean, there seems to be a glut of companies, as you mentioned. But actually, is it sometimes quite hard for these people to to know where to put their money? You know, they're actually quite wary at the moment. Yeah, it's not. A, it's certainly not an easy job to to invest into that market. With you know, you know, the the by definition, it's uh, exceptionally risky, right? It's binary outcomes that. You know, you're developing novel science that's, you know, breakthrough that's never happened. So, you know, I commend because it is a fabric of sort of our industry and we need it. We need people to take that kind of risk and, and, uh, to, to, to really put forth intelligent type investing. So I don't envy the position they have. And I think it's a, it's a very tough spot right now to kind of filter through, you know, all the science that's out there and picking the ones you think are going to have the best uh, ability to move forward. And I think that's that's part of it. There's a lot that got that got funded. I think uh, now more than ever, there's a new wave of excitement around. You know, think about all the innovation we expect to get breakthrough um, status and, and development in the coming years. A tremendous amount of excitement in the industry. So you mentioned it being all about the science. Is that the case? Is that investors' main focus always now? Are they not? Uh, can they not be won over by a? Uh, charismatic CEO or just a really well put together presentation of where the company sees themselves in 10 years time? Is it really about passing through the preclinical or clinical data when you're deciding where to put your investment dollars? Yeah, I'm sure like anything else, it's a combination of both. But, you know, most of the people I interact with are, are uh, very sophisticated as far as uh, are really focused about the science and they really keep that at the core. And I think if you're going to sort of invest and be in this industry, you know, the foundation everybody has, and, you know, and I think I, I really believe it is, you know, they, they want to be part of something that's uh, 
sort of delivering breakthrough science for patients. And that's the core of everybody. I think everybody got into this industry in some way or another because of the sort of the um, admiration for it and because family members that have gone through some stuff and either benefiting from what others have done or, or want to develop something to help others. And I suppose we've got a good sense now of what, what kind of companies investors are looking at, but are there any particular types of biotechs, either the areas they're, they're looking into or in terms of their structure or maybe their, you know, the background of that company that means they're particularly struggling to attract investment? You know, are there any other, not specific examples, but there's a certain type of business you're seeing, they're the type that may be struggling a bit more in this market. There's a lot of oncology related uh, that got funded. That's one area. I think, you know, for neuro and, and, and more broadly around CNS, you know, I think people are super excited around that. So they'll continue to look for, for avenues there because I think each with each day, I just sort of analogize it to where oncology was five to 10 years ago. You know, I think we're on the cusp of something and no doubt it's super incredibly difficult to have a breakthrough there. But I think that is very exciting for people. And I think the, the other areas are really around, let's say, more technology-related. Um, so technology in the form of whether or not it's an mRNA uh, or some sort of um, uh, technology from that perspective, as well as technology from, uh, do you have a platform? Uh, do you have you know, analytics capabilities, things like that, that are enabling uh, the breakthrough? Like those are the areas that get a little bit trickier for figure out, you know, is this just another mousetrap or is this something that's really game changing? Yeah, I mean, I suppose another thing that was really noticeable was that JP Morgan this year, it did seem very quiet on the on the deal front. You know, there's pl- there are tons of interesting companies around, but we didn't really see many big farmers snapping them up. And I think it was only the AstraZeneca and the Ipsen deals are the ones that stuck in my mind. Instead, we saw more of a trickle of licensing deal announcements, but maybe reflects the, the current environment. I, I wondered if you expected to see this uh, subdued level of large-scale M&A for a while and what type of biotechs are big pharma interested in? Yeah. You know, large-scale M&A, I, I think, you know, we're still probably a little bit away. Um, I think we'll continue to see medium-size uh, M&A this year. And, and there's been a, a couple of announcements already uh, about things that, that sort of have happened and could happen. So I think we'll continue to see that medium size and, and by medium size, somewhere between sort of 25 and 50, if you will, uh, billion. Um, you know, for the larger sort of, let's say, you know, multi-mega deals, I think we're still a little bit off. Um, you know, there's regulatory sort of hurdles that, that people would have to take on. Plus, I think, you know, companies have gone through just really a metamorphosis over the past couple of years, transforming their business. Companies are going through uh, sort of stabilizing themselves there and going through their own sort of digital uh, transformation. I think just given the gaps we're going to see in uh, patent cliffs starting in 24 and what the pipelines look like, you know, for those years out, you know, there's gaps in that and it's going to be revenues that, that come off. You know, I think about $150 billion of, of revenue could be lost starting in uh, 2024. So I think it's at, at that point, you know, we may see some uh, larger scale uh, merges to sort of look at where those gaps are and create some, uh, some scale efficiency. Uh, but in the, mean, in, the, in the meantime, you know, I think sort of that 5 to $15 billion biotech deal will continue to be a sweet spot. But there's no doubt that transactions are a fabric of our industry and we'll continue to see them. 
I think that's a really good point about the patent cliff. I, I wonder how long some of these big farmers can withhold their fire because they are going to be facing um, some some of their revenue streams starting to dry up a bit. So they, at some point they will need to make the push. But if we look further down the, um, down the stream a bit at, at smaller biotechs, I've noticed this year that we seem to be covering quite a few biotech to biotech mergers. But I didn't see quite as quite as many last year. So I guess that goes back to your point about the market starting to consolidate a bit with some companies having to having to find a solution inside a, a kind of a, a peer biotech. Yeah, they will continue to see that as they look for you know many different options, and one of those is just sort of consolidating and merging with another who who may have capabilities, who may have cash, uh, etc. Because reality is they both can't survive, so they'll look to. Uh, to sort of merge together. And the one thing we haven't touched on yet is the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, is that affecting the the overall climate for the, for these deals in the market, or is is that changing the changing the kind of landscape of how biotechs and big pharma are really looking at the next year? You know, it hasn't changed. Certainly, it's another thing um, to have to assess and look at, and it's starting to get more and more traction. Um, you know, just given that. Uh, you know, I think what people originally um, saw it come out, I think they felt like, okay, not, you know, hopefully it's not a major impact, but as people understood kind of the knock-on effect of, you know, each year it could be 20 new drugs uh, and the fact that uh, once you get into, you know, oncology and, and certain diseases, there's such a higher population um, because it is, uh, a different demographic of sort of elderly people, so you're in that forty to fifty percent of of your um, uh, of your sort of patient base. It's going to be uh, in Medicare. Um, that's a significant amount of sort of that commercial activity that's going to be impacted by this. And if there's a little bit of you know twenty new products each year, there's a constant sort of domino of uh, how how big can this be and how much can it be impact the market. Clearly, everyone's focused on it. I think companies are t- starting to stay, take a step back and say, should I be funding this, this development? And now they're making hard choices of, okay, I can't fund it because I'm never going to get my return back just given where the reimbursement is. I just wondered finally if there are any other trends you expect to be impacting the finances of biotech and pharma this year. Or have we covered most of them? One thing we see is everybody is hyper-focus on costs and running the business super effectively. So, you know, I think we're going to continue to see um, how do people become more efficient. And I think that digital transformation we're seeing across the entire value chain is here. Uh, it's not necessarily happening at the enterprise level for companies, just given the regular industry and, and how uh, difficult it is to just transform overnight. But I think we're seeing, you know, great, progress and movement in certain areas, particularly when we think about R&D and how just technology is really accelerating that, uh, helping with, with better quality, helping with better trial design, helping with the speed and quality of submissions so you can get things approved. So that is super exciting. That's a trend uh, I expect to, to accelerate here as we move forward. There's no doubt that our industry is going to have to continue to get uh, more efficient. Uh, you know, if you look at the capital markets, you know, the, the industry over the last seven years has barely sort of uh, tracked with the market. Uh, it's slightly underperformed. And that's in a period of where we had sort of really great breakthrough science around oncology, cell and therapy, rare disease. So you would have thought just on the surface, 
wow, I would have thought they would overperform the market. But obviously those, you know, the, the regulatory constraints and the constraints of complying with many different rules and regulations across the globe and different uh, 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 geographies and territory, you know, our industry will continue to need to be more efficient and more effective just to get the, the capital returns that are there. Um, so that that is exciting for me, and I think people are hyper-focused on that. And that's a trend I think I continue to see not only at the, at the market corporates, but in, bi- in biotech um, by, be, be, by being able to use technology and data uh, to sort of more efficiently develop uh, opportunities. That's a really good point. The digitization of biotech is is going to be transformational uh, in the future, and you can already st- see that starting to happen now in, in the clinical trial arena. Um, but I guess that's a whole other podcast, really. So maybe one we'll have to have you back on to chat about. But, but I'm leaving on that optimistic note. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Glenn. That was really fascinating. That was Glenn Hunzinger and James Waldron. And now more news. Johnson & Johnson is ending work on an adult RSV vaccine, bowing out of a competitive race led by GSK and Pfizer. A company press release said that the decision came after review of the RSV vaccine landscape. J&J Schott was in the middle of a phase three trial. It was planning to enrol more than 27,000 patients. As Max Bayer reports, the news wasn't a total shock. Last month, Max Bayer obtained a video from a source. The video was of a J&J town hall meeting describing changes to the company's infectious disease and vaccine pipelines. During the meeting, J&J's Penny Heaton explained that future RSV vaccine work was paused while the company assessed the next steps. J&J's decision further clears the runway for GSK and Pfizer, which are neck and neck for the first approved RSV vaccine product. Both are expected to receive decisions from the FDA in May. Novartis said a clinical trial testing its drug in early-stage breast cancer was successful. The drug is called Kisgali. It was used with traditional endocrine therapy after surgery in patients with a subtype of breast cancer called HR-positive, HER2-negative. On Monday, Novartis issued a press release that said the Kisgali regimen significantly reduced the risk of disease recurrence compared with endocrine therapy alone. As Angus Liu reports, the trial success could significantly expand Kisgali's sales prospects. An analyst at Oddo BHF said in a Monday note that Kisgali's annual sales could reach as high as $5 billion. It also means Kaskali will compete with another similar drug by Eli Lilly. The Eli Lilly rival is FDA-approved for early breast cancer with a high risk of recurrence. But Kaskali's trial also included patients at intermediate risk. The White House wants to use biotechnology and biomanufacturing to tackle issues from climate change to cell therapy production. As Fraser Kansteiner reports, the White House released a report outlining what it calls bold goals. The goals include improving supply chains for critical drugs and making 25% of drug ingredients for small molecule drugs in the United States. As it stands, many active pharmaceutical ingredients bound for the US are made in countries like China and India. The government also wants to be able to predict at least half of supply chain weaknesses and to use biomanufacturing adjustments to grapple with bottlenecks. Over the next 20 years, the goal is to be able to tackle those bottlenecks just one week after they're flagged. You can find out more about these topics in our show notes at fiercepharma.com. Look for podcasts. 
Before I sign off for today, I want to give you a little fun peek into our behind-the-scenes recording sessions. Caleb, our sound engineer, doesn't know I'm including this in the podcast today. Well, we'll see how that goes. But here's a peek into what fun we had this week. Put your hand like this up to the mic for distance. Yeah. Ah, gotcha. Mm-hmm. That just made your voice sound a little bit more full. Also, another thing you could help like helps with plosivine, keeping your chin parallel to the floor. It's super weird, but now that I think about it with peas, I feel like my tongue gets loose if I'm kind of looking down a little bit. But if you're up, pee, pee. <laughs> when you look down, your peas get loose. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Gotta tighten those peas up. Oh, that man, is funny. funny. Even just massaging your larynx is really good. No coffee. Gotta be careful with tea, too. But anything that is like a diuretic. Because so you might get loose peas. You might get loose peas. That's it for the top line. I'm Teresa Carey. Our sound engineer is Caleb Hodson. And that's the bottom line from the top line.